Good morning, everyone. It is good to be held in the firm grip of our Savior. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. It doesn't take too long to live on this planet to learn some simple facts of life. We have come to learn that apple trees produce apples. There's a little quiz for you. What do plum trees make? Plums, good. Oh, I'm glad somebody had the answer. No, yeah. <laughs> Grapevines make grape clusters. Um, but what happens if they don't? <laughs> oh, you're getting ahead of us here, Buster. Yep. What do you do if a fruit tree doesn't make any fruit? Buster chops it down. Well, that's, that's good to know. Uh, what happens when it doesn't do what it's made to do? You can think about that with trees, fruit trees. You can think about that with institutions as well. Now, it's hard to believe that a school like Harvard was originally set up to train pastors for gospel ministry. It's hard to imagine today. Institutions uh, often, with time, can fail to do what they intended to do, what they were set up to do. We can continue to turn that image a bit. What do you do when God's house is not being fruitful? What do you do when a temple is not being used for its intended purpose? Well, in our passage today, Jesus is going to deal both with a fruitless tree and with a fruitless temple. It's being used for purposes other than what it was instituted for. Let's read our passage. We'll be in Mark 11, starting in verse 12. Moving down through verse 19 for today. Hear the word of the Lord. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for those parts of your word that are comforting and a salve to our souls. Thank you for those parts that make us uncomfortable. Lord, we ask that you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to your glory this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage, I think the main call for us would be that we would bear fruit for God in our lives. We would bear fruit for God in our lives. We will look first at a fruitless tree, and then after that we'll look at a defiled temple. Let's look first at this fruitless tree. 
the sun set on Palm Sunday, as we call it, uh, at the end of our text last week that we looked at. Uh, And this morning, as we see in our text, the sun has risen on Monday of what is called Holy Week by many. Uh, They had gone out to Bethany the previous evening, and they slept there. And now Jesus and his disciples are coming back to Jerusalem in the early morning. Mark records that as they were coming to Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry. You know, we never read about an angel getting hungry or thirsty or tired or sleeping. And the fact that we see things about Jesus like that in the Gospels is just a clear pointer to the fact that Jesus took on human flesh. The Son of God became a man. Jesus was fully human. He got hungry, and he got tired, and he slept. He was thirsty. Jesus experienced the full range of human needs. Here we see that he hungered. What Jesus does next in this scene here uh, has shocked some and puzzled many. Jesus goes to a fig tree looking for figs, and it's out of season, mind you, and then he curses it for not having any figs. Commentator James Edwards points out that Bertrand Russell, the mathematician and secular philosopher, he points to passages like this, and this one in particular he'll, he'll point to, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Bertrand Russell charged Jesus at this point with being vindictive and irrational. Now, others don't go that far. Uh, Others have read this passage and concluded that Jesus was uh, just grouchy that morning. But you know what? That can't be the case. You know, we might get sinfully angry. We might even get hangry. You know what getting hangry is when you get angry because you're hungry? Uh, We might get hangry, but certainly that can't be true of the sinless Son of Man. As we read the text carefully, I think we can see that, in fact, the cursing of the fig tree was intentional. Uh, It wasn't that Jesus flew off the handle. Uh, You might even go so far as to say it was premeditated as we look further into it. But to see that, I want to walk through the text uh, a little slower to see the point of it all. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus sees the fig tree in the distance. They're on their way to Jerusalem, uh, and he sees leaves on it. And if a fig tree has leaves on it, then there's a good chance it's got figs on it. We've already seen uh, that Mark comments that it wasn't the season for figs. I think this especially strikes us as strange. Why would Jesus go to this tree if he knew it wasn't the season for figs? I had to do a little research on figs and fig trees and whatnot because I don't really know fig trees. I don't eat figs very often. Uh, But uh, as it turns out, uh, some fig trees will put out fruit once a year. Others will put fruit out twice a year. Uh, There's a, a late springtime harvest for figs that would take place about a month or so after this. So this is the week of the Passover, which is always in the springtime. And in about roughly a month from now, there would be the springtime harvest of figs. Uh, They're getting closer to the Passover, like I said, so it's that season. Um, 
So although there wouldn't have been ripe figs on the tree at this point, there would have been unripened figs on the tree. Uh, the word even used here, uh, suke in the Greek, is for this ripened fig. There's another term, pagim in Hebrew, that's for the unripened figs. So uh, maybe Jesus wouldn't have gone there looking for ripe figs, but you know, you only get ripe figs if you start by having unripe figs, right? Works that way with apples and whatnot. So uh, the Jews would have eaten unripened figs as well. If they were hungry, they could have eaten those. They don't taste as good, of course, but they are still edible and people do eat them. So it's not absurd that Jesus would go to a fig tree and look for food on it, even if it wasn't in the season. So he comes to this tree in hopes of finding something to eat, and he finds nothing. The fig tree is completely barren. There is nothing to eat on it. It could have had something on it, but it doesn't. In response to this, and remember, he is in full view of his disciples. He is in their earshot. Mark tells us that they, they heard this and they saw it. He says a curse upon it. He says, may no one ever eat from you again. Now, the, the verb that's used, may no one ever eat, is a unique verb in the New Testament. The way that it's put out, I won't bore you with all the details, but it essentially is something like a prayer, or I think it's rightly here a curse, on this tree, that no one would ever eat from it again. As we'll see next week, the tree never does produce fruit again in its life. Uh, it will be deader than dead by Tuesday. So what exactly is Jesus doing here? If he's not losing it on the tree, what is he doing? I believe that here, Jesus is acting out a parable. Uh, he is demonstrating an object lesson of sorts through this tree. And before we look at what that lesson might be from Jesus, uh, I want to give you a couple examples in Scripture where God does that. Uh, lest you think I'm just making this up. Uh, it, we see this in other places in Scripture. As we look at the Old Testament, we see that God has his prophets enact parables of sorts. Uh, and they are done publicly, and they're meant to be seen by others. So I got two examples of that. Uh, we see that, for instance, in the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, God calls him to act out parables for people to see, and there's a lesson attached to it. So in Isaiah 20, God tells Isaiah to go around the city naked. And apparently, Isaiah had to do that for three years before God told him to put his clothes back on. You know, you thought you had it rough going to the doctor's. Now, what was the point of that? Why would God have Isaiah do that? Well, the point, God explains, is that he will be a visual demonstration of what's going to happen to Egypt and Cush. Some people had been trusting in Egypt and Cush to save them from the Assyrian armies that were coming. And the reality, however, as God knew it, was that Assyria was going to lead both of these nations away shamefully as naked exiles. So God sends Isaiah out to do this so that uh, if somebody in Israel was tempted to trust in Egypt to save them instead of trusting in Yahweh to save them, then they could just remember that aspect of Isaiah's ministry. And by the way, if you ever get discouraged about the ministry that God has given you, uh, you can just remember the ministry that God gave the great prophet Isaiah and 
uh, be relieved that he hasn't given you that. Uh, I want to give you one more example of an enacted parable, uh, and there are many others. Uh, we can see in uh, the ministry of Ezekiel, there are many uh, of these that God calls Ezekiel to. I want to focus on one. You may remember it. This is where God has Ezekiel lay on his side. I'll just read it out in the first eight verses of Ezekiel chapter 4. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, uh, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in that state of siege uh, the, the press and press the siege against it. This is uh, a sign for the house of Israel. So uh, Ezekiel makes a brick and he kind of, not exactly like a Lego set, he, but he, set, he sets up a little scene basically of the city in siege. Well, then listen to what God says to him next. It might have been fun to that point, but hear the rest. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it for the number of the days that you lie on it. You shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the days of the years of their punishment, so long shall you bear the punishment of the people of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lay down a second time, but on your right side. And bear the punishment of the house of Judah 40 days. I assign you a day for each year. And I could go on, and I won't even go into uh, how God has him eat at that time, but that's included. Um, so again, there is a parable that God is having acted out in the lives of these prophets. They do things to show a, a lesson to God's people. So I think Jesus, in his prophetic role, is doing something similar here with the fig tree. He is enacting a parable. I believe that when Jesus curses the fig tree, he is pointing to the coming judgment on the religious leaders of Israel. Now, why would I say that? Uh, and I know I've done a lot of explaining at this point, but bear with me just a little more. Uh, I want to come back uh, and explain another one of Mark's sandwiches. Uh, to those who have been with us uh, for the early part of Mark, uh, you're probably tired of hearing me talk about Mark's sandwiches. Uh, you, think, you probably think he's got more sandwiches than Subway, but you're probably right. Uh, for those who are here more recently, uh, you might wonder what in the world I'm talking about. Uh, when I talk about Mark's sandwiches, I'm talking about a, a technique that Mark uses to tell stories. Now, it's not that he's just moving things around. They actually happen this way. But the way that he presents them uh, shows that these events are meant to be tied together. So he will take um, an aspect of a story. Then he will have another story in the middle. And then as Paul Harvey says, or used to say, then you have the rest of the story after that. And the way that he puts these together is showing that they're meant to be read together. There's a point that's being told through these stories being together. And we find um, that in other places in Mark's gospel, that, for instance, the raising of Jairus' daughter. Jairus comes, and he requests that Jesus would come and heal his daughter. 
This is in Mark chapter 5. Then on the way, Jesus is interrupted or stopped by a woman with a bleeding issue. Jesus heals her, and then they continue on the way, and you get the rest of the story of Jesus coming and raising Jairus' daughter. Now, it, those two stories that are sandwiched together are making a point about faith and healing, that those are meant to be, they happen together, and Mark is helping us to see that there is a point uh, in that to read it together. Now, I think that's happening here in Mark 11. We have the cursing of the fig tree. We have Jesus cleansing the temple. And then following that, and we won't get there this week, but following that is the lesson of the cursing of the fig tree. Now, I want to focus next time. There's a lot there, so we can't get into all of that this week. He's going to be making a point about faith in this next uh, section that we'll get to next week. We'll look at that. But we also have to see, I think, that there is an intentional uh, parable being enacted here. In Jesus cursing the fig tree, I believe that he is demonstrating that there is a judgment coming for the religious leaders who are not following God. So to sum it up, Jesus is not losing his cool out of being hungry. Instead, this is an intentional demonstration of judgment. It's a prophetic picture of sorts. Uh, and Jesus has come to this place, this temple, as we'll see, that should be full of abundant fruitfulness, uh, but there is no fruit in it. Now, before uh, Jesus is going to clear out the temple here, uh, the money changers, I do want to make one more comment about Jesus here. We see uh, I've been making the case that Jesus is not just getting impatient and angry uh, in some petty sort of way. Uh, and I, I think that's certainly true. He's not. Uh, that does not mean, however, that Jesus does not ever experience anger. We don't have to go beyond the Gospel of Mark to see that. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, uh, we saw that when people were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them, and his disciples were rebuking them, telling them to go away, Jesus became indignant at that. Earlier in Mark chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus is grieved at the hardness of heart of the religious leaders, and there it says that he looks on them with anger. So Jesus did know the emotion of anger, though he never sinned in his possession or expression of his anger. Now I know that I cannot say that for myself. Jesus' anger always arose for righteous reasons, and it was always expressed in righteous ways. I think if we're honest with ourselves, our anger so often flashes out for the wrong reasons, and it spills out in the wrong ways. If you find yourself boiling over into sinful anger again and again, take that to the Lord. Any sin we commit, we can find forgiveness in Jesus if we repent and seek him. Our righteous Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sin, even the sin of our anger. We want to be reminded of that as we see him and his holiness here. As we continue in our text, I think we're going to see another episode of the righteous anger of Jesus. So let's turn now. We've seen the fruitless tree. Let's look now at a defiled temple. So after the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, and he goes directly into the temple. And that's where it gets exciting. Verse 15 through 17, I'll read it again. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those 
who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus enters the te- temple, drives out the merchants, he knocks over tables and chairs. Uh, John, I believe is the Gospel of John, makes mention that he goes out and he, he braids together a whip as he goes in. Uh, you know, Jesus wrecked a lot of people's day on that Monday morning. This seems so different from anything that we have seen from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark so far. We're used to Jesus having a leper run up to him. And Jesus is moved with compassion and he heals the leper. See that in Mark uh, 1.41. We're used to seeing Jesus take a sweet little girl by the hand and raise her from the dead. Like in Mark 5.41. We're used to seeing Jesus feeding thousands of people. See that in Mark 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 and in Mark 8 with the feeding of the 4,000. But this is a side of Jesus that sometimes we forget. Although Jesus was and is compassionate and tender and generous, he also cares about holiness and God's glory down to the very core of his being. John in John 2, 17 says that points to a psalm attributed to Jesus here that the zeal for God's house consumed him. As we consider this part of the chapter, uh, I want to give you a little idea of the temple. It can get kind of confusing. What what exactly was the temple like? Where is this taking place? Is this in the inner sanctuary? Where are these events taking place? Uh, I want to give you a little lay of the land, as best we know of what this temple was like. Then I want to look more specifically at the rebuke that Jesus brings uh, and, and consider a lesson for us in that. Let's look at the temple here. So the temple in Jesus' day uh, was often called, what we often call Herod's temple. Uh, you'll remember the first temple that Solomon built got destroyed by the Babylonians when Israel first went into captivity. When they returned 70 years later, they rebuilt the temple. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians, they rebuilt it. And when they laid the foundations, Ezra tells us, there was... So much noise that people could hear it far beyond the city. And it was a mingled noise. The young people were rejoicing to see the foundation of this temple laid. And the older people, who had been led away as captives, who had seen the original temple in all of its glory, they wept as they saw how small it was in comparison to Solomon's temple. And this temple continued for hundreds of years. And then along came Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great, uh, he was that Herod who killed the babies. We read about him in the start of Matthew's Gospel. He uh, had all sorts of ambitions. One of the key things he was known for was his building projects. I mean, he had a a building ambition that must have matched Solomon. Uh, So he was known for that, as well as his murderous paranoia. He comes to the temple... He sees it, and he decides what he can do uh, is rebuild it. So he takes the temple down, deconstructs it, the second temple that has been made, takes up the foundation, and he builds a greater, grander, grander uh, temple. It took decades to build this. Uh, Even in the time of Jesus, this temple is still under construction, so to speak. 
In fact, ironically, the temple is only completed for about three years before the Roman general Titus comes in and destroys it in 70 AD. Uh, and we'll get back to the temple more as we get farther into Mark. Uh, the temple here, Herod's temple, was a massive complex. It covered about 35 acres on the Temple Mount. Uh, the largest area was what was called the Court of the Temple, or the, excuse me, the, the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, I wish I could have it pic pictured for you here, but just maybe follow me a little bit. For, for this Temple Mount area, there was a perimeter around the outside, and that was about 35 acres of space. Uh, around this perimeter, there were uh, columns that went up that were 30 feet tall, and Josephus says that they were so big around that it would take three grown men having their hands out like this to be able to touch fingertips. That's how big the pillars are around this, and over that was a portico, a little roofed area. Now, the overall thing was open air, but on the perimeter, you had these, these um, porticos over it and these pillars, and in that was an open courtyard called the, the Court of the Gentiles. In that place, Gentiles could come in. So this considered the, the, the temple complex, if you will. Gentiles could be into there. Then within the middle of that, there was the further part of the temple where you had the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. It was a building in the middle of that. Now, of course, no Gentiles were allowed in there. In fact, there was a sign that separated those two that said something along the lines of, if you're not a Jew, don't come in here. And if you do, you will have forfeited your life and it will be your fault. Of course, I'm paraphrasing that. Something along those lines. It was written in Greek and Hebrew and uh, Latin. So what we're reading about here, when Jesus goes in and he drives out the money changers and he's knocking over tables and the things that are going on here, this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. These things aren't all in the the sanctuary of the temple, it's within the temple complex. There would have been, I don't know if you've ever been to, to England, the, the towns will have a marketplace in the middle and, and you can go and you can get lunch or you can buy supplies or whatever. Uh, European towns, I guess, commonly have that kind of, if you will, a bazaar. Uh, but here, there, there were booths set up, there were things uh, that where people could go and they could buy uh, animals for sacrifice. Uh, well, I've given you a probably more detail than you need. There's a little bit of an idea. I just want to situate it for you so you have an idea of where this is taking place uh, and the significance of it. So I want to turn now. Let's look at the rebukes that Jesus gives to the religious leaders here. Uh, we read verse 17. It says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So the first part, Jesus is quoting, is it not written? That's a basic formula to say this is a passage from the scriptures. It's being fulfilled. Uh, or is Jesus alluding to? This comes from Isaiah 56. A couple weeks ago, Steve quoted from the same passage as he, as he worked through Isaiah. I want to give you a little more of the context of this quote that Jesus gives. This is Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8. Listen to what Isaiah is prophesying about, and even listen for our phrase that Jesus uses here. This is Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him 
to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather them, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. In this section in Isaiah, we see not only God's heart to gather his people Israel, but to gather the nations to worship him as well. Now, again, these events in Mark 11, this is all taking place in that court of the Gentiles. Uh, this is the only precinct that the Gentiles are allowed into. And this is the very place where Jesus quotes this text. Jesus points out that the house of the Lord, one of its purposes was to be a place of prayer for the nations. God's people should have been setting their hearts on God and bringing him glory and on praying for the nations to come to worship God. But they had other things on their hearts. Jesus goes on to say that you have made it a den of robbers. The religious leaders had turned God's house of prayer into a cave of crooks. They had turned it into a hideout of bandits. These words are meant to burn. And all the more as you realize where they come from. This phrase comes from the mouth of Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. Jeremiah ministered about a hundred years after Isaiah. In Jeremiah 7, the prophet denounces those who trust in the temple and yet still pursue their sin. Uh, listen to that text. I'll read a few verses from it. Jeremiah 7, verse 4, says, Do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So there he's rebuking people who are that repeating this phrase three times in Hebrew points to the, the significance of it, the importance of it, and they're trusting in the temple. Verse 7 to 8 to 11 here in Jeremiah 7. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. These are scathing words from Jeremiah to the people of Israel in his day. They were trusting in the temple while their hearts were far from God as they were pursuing their own sins. Sadly, the situation wasn't much different in Jesus' day. As Jesus saw the temple the night before, uh, I am sure that he saw the stations for selling animals and the booths for changing money out. Uh, there was a whole merchant system at the temple that was quite elaborate and very bureaucratic. Uh, now, we've talked about the scribes and the Pharisees a bit haven't talked as much about the Sadducees. They were a group within Judaism that were kind of over the priestly class. The high priest would have come from the Sadducees. Uh, they got to regulate the temple. And so part of that privilege is they also got to say which animals were going to be accepted at the temple and which were not. Um, and you could imagine the annoyance of bringing an animal all the way from wherever you lived to Jerusalem to offer and having a priest tell you, no, it ain't good enough. And you say, well, what's wrong with it? It doesn't meet our specifications. <laughs> you know, the Sadducees had that authority. They could, 
They could just say, we're not going to accept that. Along with that, then, they sold animals. And that, that's how you know you're going to get the right animals. You go and you just buy it from the Sadducees. And of course, those animals would have been upcharged. And along with that, we see Jesus turns over the money ta changers' tables. Uh, what would happen, uh, there was a temple tax that was to be given. Uh, if you came in with your denarius, it wouldn't be accepted in the temple. Uh, on the face of the denarius was the face of the Caesar. And no image was going to be allowed in the temple. So what they would do is they changed their, your denarius out, a Roman coin, for the Tyrian shekel, which was from Tyre. We've heard of Tyre and Sidon. They had a coin that was just basically metal, no image on it. That's what was accepted in the temple. But along with that, there was also basically a 10 to 12% upcharge when your money gets changed out. So uh, the Sadducees were making bank off of this whole process. Uh, they, were, they were sitting well. Uh, they were making good money off of the people. Uh, they were preying on the people as predators rather than preying for the people as shepherds. And uh, they certainly weren't praying for the nations as a light to unbelievers. So Jesus brings a scathing rebuke upon them. Uh, and the conflict of this final week is just getting started. Uh, in our passage here, uh, even here we see that after this, the leaders want to kill Jesus. They are seeking desperately how they can destroy him. But they're afraid because they know that if they do, if they do it in some crass public way, then they're going to have to face the rage of the mob who like Jesus at this point. And so they're looking for some sort of a way. How can we, how can we get at Jesus? They don't know yet. Of course, we know how they will, uh, but they don't know yet. After this episode, Jesus turns his back, leaves the city, for the night, and Monday is over. What will Tuesday bring? We wonder if Monday has brought this. Before this sermon is over, and we're getting close to the end here, uh, we need to consider our lives in light of this text. You know, we do not frequent a man-made temple in our day. The building that we gather in, as much as it is a gift from God, it is not the dwelling place of God with man, the way that the temple was to be pictured as. God now dwells in his people by his Holy Spirit. In God's wild and amazing plan, he has taken up residence in the midst of his people. He dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. The New Testament even refers to us as God's temple. Texts like 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17. That's true for us individually as Christians, and it's true for us corporately together as the body of Christ. So we can ask ourselves some questions then. Is God glorified in his temple today? If Jesus returned today, would we be ashamed for how we've kept his temple? I'm not talking here about our physical state of our health. I want to ask you, how is your heart before the Lord? What has captured your affections? Is it the Lord and his glory? Or is it possible at times that our ambitions rise no higher than material gain like the Sadducees? I want to ask you some more questions. What would you consider gain in your life? What do you count as gain in your life? 
with however many days the Lord has left for each of us, what do we hope to gain in those days? As we look at our future, however long that is, what would we want to gain in our life, and does our definition of gain match God's definition? Now, I want to encourage you and tell you that if you have life left in you today, if you can hear my words and understand what I'm saying, there is yet something for you to gain for Christ. If you have life, then you have a purpose for being alive. You have good works that God has prepared for you beforehand to walk in. There is something yet to gain for God. And the question is, do we see it? And do we want that? Even in this text itself, I can see one great example of something we could gain for Christ. Uh, here, Jesus mentions that his house was to be a house of prayer for the nations. It's easy to think that when you're praying, nothing's happening. At least I'm tempted to. I, I uh, asked my wife the other day, I said, Artina, do you, do you just feel sometimes like when you're praying, nothing's happening? And she looked at me and responded very sympathetically, no. <laughs> Not trying to pull you out. Just to say, what I'm saying is, she gets the understanding that prayer is, is powerful. I get so wrapped up in doing things and... In, in wanting to do something with my hands that I can think that prayer doesn't, nothing takes place when we pray. Uh, that's just not true. God is at work when we pray. And that is a good work. We don't often think about it, at least I don't often think about it that way, but your prayer is a good work that God has called you to do. We should pray for the nations. We should pray that God would raise up people to go out for the sake of the name into hard places in the world to spread the gospel. We should pray for family members who don't know Christ. It's shocking, but there are so many people in our day, in our nation, who really haven't heard the gospel. It's hard to imagine, but it's true, increasingly so. We should pray that God would raise people up. Pray that God would help us to be ready when he gives us those opportunities. You know, set our hearts to pray for people in our life. We want to discipline ourselves to pray. And prayer is just one way that we can seek gain for God's glory in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we want to be fruitful trees. We want to bear fruit for God's glory in our lives. You know, sometimes the point of a passage can be so obvious that we miss it. So let me just turn the point of this passage uh, a little differently than I've said it so far. One of the points of this passage is you don't want to be like that fruit tree. It's pretty simple enough, isn't it? We don't want to be like that fruitless fruit tree. We want to glorify God in our lives. And may he supply everything we need to glorify him in our lives as we produce fruit in his strength and to his glory. We'll bring our time to a close now, and I'll invite Maggie to come and play and invite the, the men to prepare for communion, and let's go to